the ninth episode of the Habibi Collective podcast, an educational resource and insider guide to the film industry. Uh, I'm Noor Halou, and today I'm here with Yanis uh, of uh, Jakarta Records and Habibi Funk, uh, co-founder and also DJ. Uh, welcome, Yanis. Thank you. Thank you for being here with us. <laughs> um, so I'll just start and dive right in with my first question. So um, how did you start digging and issuing the records for Habibi Funk? And also, can you tell us a bit about the difference between issuing new music like you do in Jakarta Records and reissuing uh, older labels like uh, you do in Habibi Funk and about the process of production and distribution in this case? Yeah, I mean, I, when I started Habibi Funk, the I was already co-running a record label, as you said, Jakarta Records, which I had started with a friend around the time we graduated from school. It was kind of a hobby the first two years. I mean, we did it while studying, which allowed us. So when, yeah, as when you study, you live in a shared apartment, have in Germany cheap health insurance. So it gave us like the freedom to try stuff. Um, and, um, but yeah, realistically, the first two, three years um, of Jakarta Records um, was a plus minus zero. I mean, it was a sole project of, of, of love because we liked to run a record label. And then eventually um, we ended up working with a couple of artists that became kind of big afterwards. And it luckily grew to the point where we could make a living off of it. Um, and one artist we worked with back then um, called um, Litzy Ambassador, um, who's actually a filmmaker now. He uh, was one of the two directors of the Beyonce movie for Walt Disney. Um, and um, he uh, got booked to play a big festival in Morocco called Mawazim. Um, and I ended up staying a couple of days longer. Um, and then I randomly walked through Casablanca and found a shop that looked like it was mainly selling old broken electronics. But then walking past it, I saw that behind it was stacks and stacks of records. And it turned out that the guy used to have a record label and distribution in the 1970s um, and then kind of changed business, but he still had his old stock. Um, at this place, I found this a record by this guy called Fadul who was a Moroccan singer who very influenced by artists like James Brown um, came up with this unique version of that sound and translated it into, into something uh, um, that he made that he made his own. Um, and I was super intrigued by it. I showed it to a couple of other people who also loved it. I started making some mixes back then. SoundCloud was still a thing. Um, feedback was was really good and I guess because we were already running Jakarta Records so we kind of had an idea about distribution manufacturing so basically the day-to-day -day work and tools of a record label um, I guess the idea to start a label dedicated to a particular sound um, from 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 North Africa and the Middle East or West Asia um, is is something that came 
or at least came a bit more natural to us. Um, and then, yeah, I, I, Blitz got booked again to play in Morocco half a year later for a TV show. So we kind of started um, trying to find Fadul, uh, assuming he might still be alive. Um, eventually, it took us maybe one and a half or three years to find his family. Um, after like a year or so, we learned that he had already passed in the early 90s. Um, and yeah, um, that was like the first release we did, the first proper album. Um, and since then, uh, we, we kept on doing uh, what we did. And, and I mean, th th there's definitely a difference in, in how the average release that comes out on Jakarta Records and the average release which comes out on Habibi Funk looks like. I mean, with Habibi Funk, it's much more important for us to also contextualize the work, to do interviews, to have booklets that come along with photos, with liner notes. Um, and um, this is something which is less of a focus uh, um, for, for Jakarta Records because it's all contemporary artists that are on Instagram and so forth. So if you want to learn about them or learn about their process, you just check out their social media channels. Um, which also means that also with the necessity of trying to find the artists or trying to find the, the, the entities that, that hold the rights to the music, the process of putting out a Habibi Funk record is much more time intense and research intense than the average Jakarta Records releases. So I think Jakarta Records might put out 10 albums a year Habibi Funk usually struggles just making it to three releases a year. Um, but yeah, um, that is, and, but at the same time, there's also a lot of stuff which is the same. Like um, we, the, the deals we give out are the same. We do like the classic indie label 50-50 split. Um, and I mean, the, the, the mechanics of, of the process is like, how do you manufacture a record? How does distribution work? How does PR work? Has a lot of similarities. So, I mean, I think there, there's more similarities in the work of both labels um, than there's differences, but there's certain differences, especially when it comes to the time and dedication that it requires to put an individual record out. Nice, okay. Um, so I have two questions to follow up on that. So my first question is, um, so I've read in one of the booklets and uh, I have one of your records that, um, and um, I read in one of the booklets that you choose the records that you want to put out very personally. It's based on your personal taste. Um, and it's kind of define, you can kind of define it uh, by terms like uh, Zouk or Bossa uh, music. <laughs> yeah, yeah no, no, I, I, I think when I, I, I guess I know which text you read. Um, yeah. I, I guess what the type of sound that usually interests us is when an artist brought together the influences he or she had from its surrounding with something that comes from the outside. Um, and that might be like, yeah, there, there, there's like a Zouk, which is like Caribbean music um, track on, um, on our compilation by an Algerian artist because he met uh, Caribbean musicians while, while um, <coughs> sorry, living in Paris. And oftentimes there, there is a distinct influence of like 
Western, mostly American, Afro-American genres like soul, funk, jazz on a lot of these releases. But for example, if you look at the Sudanese releases we did, one could argue that the influence of like Ethiopian music and also Congolese music is much more predominant on some of these than, than any Western genres. But yeah, I think that that type of bringing together different influences has a high potential of creating something musically <clears throat> that, um, that um, is something that we're interested in. And at the same time, therefore, I'm also always trying to, um, and that is more misunderstanding I sometimes have when, when I speak to quote unquote Western media that I try to make it understood that what we are interested in is usually very niche special interest music. Um, I mean, the, the, the most of the releases we put out from Lebanon were originally uh, pressed in a run of like 100 and 200 cassettes that were just distributed among friends. What we are doing is not aiming to have, be a fair representation of the musical scene in Beirut, by no means. I mean, we are more, focused on the stuff that that was what would be considered maybe underground or yeah, niche today. Yeah, and that's that's often like that's often problematic because like Habibi Fung is kind of represented as uh, being this uh, like popularizing music from this region from this time as like a broader thing, but uh, it's much more like specific as you said now and so I think it's really interesting because um, no one is really doing the work you are doing and there's not really... <laughs> Just, my, my cat has the thing of being, me being very interesting to that cat one. All right, sorry. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, it's okay. Um, yeah, so I'm, <laughs> I lost my train of thought, but... Um... Me too, when I got bit in the finger. <laughs> but yeah, sorry. <laughs> Um, so yeah, I was I was just thinking like it's interesting because the like you're you're kind of doing a process of archiving, but it's a very specific like delimited archive. Like how do you deal with this? How do you deal with the fact that um, a lot of spotlight is being put on Habibi Funk as like something um, or depicted broader than what it does, and then it becomes problematic because the archive is like. It, it gets defined by what you do, but it's actually like, there's a lot more than, than this type of music. Um, yeah, I mean, yeah. That, I mean, one of the things that I try to do is exactly have this conversation that we are having and point out that what we are doing by no means is that representation. And that, that's why, I, I guess also in that text, I guess you read the text for the compilation, it says the same thing. Um, but yes, I mean, it's, it's, that, that is definitely an issue. And I, I mean, as much as it is great, how, how big, and I mean, I'm still big within a particular niche, but within that niche, how big Habibi Funk has gotten. And it's always a bit hard to balance out Habibi Funk as an entity or as an umbrella getting recognition versus the individual artist. Um, and it's a, it's a slippery slope. Um, on the one hand, I would sometimes be happy 
like I, I for example one thing i experienced when we promote a new record and we pitch it to journalists usually the journalist asks to interview me and i'm always like yeah but this artist is available for an interview um but i guess they always assume it, it'll be easier doing it through me that young person who knows WhatsApp and whatever. I, I can't even tell you. And it's not something that is limited to Western media. It's the same for, for North African and, and Middle Eastern media. Um, but on the other hand, I, and I had this conversation actually with Roger, whose music we're putting um, out next month. Um, and he said, no, I mean, he, he actually still thinks it's a good thing because without the general attention that Habibi Funk is getting, his music would have never gotten on that level. I mean, Habibi Funk's general attention allows us to get a momentum for a release that only came out in a pressing of 100 cassette tapes. So probably these songs we're putting out have been heard by a hundred people or whatever. Um, and on the first weekend where we announce a release, thousands and thousands of people who have listened to it on YouTube, Spotify and co. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's something that I always try to keep in mind um, where how much is, I mean, I realize that personalizing things um, and me also being part of that label's narrative is helping because it makes it relatable. Um, but it's also always a question, when is it too much? Um, which, yeah, um, I mean, sometimes that might be too much and I only realize it after. Um, so yeah, that, that, I mean, even though originally your question um, was more about um, the, the, the umbrella that Habibi Funk is given, but yeah, I mean, there's, there's pros and cons that the umbrella has gotten so big, um, but I still feel the, the pros um, outweigh the cons, um, um, especially for the artists we work with. But yeah, it's definitely something to keep in mind. And it's the same for, for your original question that essentially Habibi Funk is a fully artificial genre. It's obviously nothing that historically existed. And under the umbrella, there is a lot of music that also does not really have a connection. I mean, it's an artificial one. Um, but then again, every label does that to an extent. Um, I mean, yeah, that's that's kind of the essence of a label. Um, yeah, I mean, I guess this is how all genres genres get created. You know, it's like one person kind of coins it and like funds hmm. it for production yeah. or for like uh, yeah or like. Yeah. You know, and I, I would also try to avoid it calling a genre. For me, it's always just. I try to use it as a shortcut to get a conversation going, um, which then will be more detailed. I mean, um, like, yeah, you have the booklets, you have the write-ups on, on Instagram, where we try to provide much more details than saying, oh, this is a BB Funk track. Um, so, um, yeah, I, 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 for, for me, I try to consider it as a door opener. Yeah. Coming back to like the cassette and the record as a material thing. So when you reissue those uh, those records and cassettes, do you do a lot of uh, like, do you fix the sound a lot or do you usually try to keep it as close to 
the orig original recording as it is. And also, uh, <laughs> also like, how do you preserve and how do you archive um, what you have? Um, I mean, it's, it really, I mean, so basically what we put out is, is one-on-one -on -one the same, the music, when there's no additional production. I mean, it's, um, but obviously let's say um, we've put out releases that have come from an actual cassette tape. Um, and when a cassette tape is 40 years old, you might have the second where the sound drops or you have like this hissing sound that is classic for cassette tape or when you have a vinyl record as a, as a source material, you might have a click um, because there's a scratch on it. Or even if you have the master tapes, there might still be issues. And obviously we, we work um, with a recording studio that tries to bring the record, make the recording sound again, the way it was recorded and basically try to take away the audible dust of the last decades. But this is all we do. Um, and then, I mean, in, in terms of, of, of archiving, I mean, digitalizing is the, is the thing you have to do for these things. I mean, it's, um, especially with cassette tapes and master tapes, um, there's chemicals in the tape. Um, so the older it gets, the, the harder it becomes to keep, even if you keep them in good archival um, conditions, a tape will deteriorate. There's nothing you can do about it, at least to my knowledge. Um, and I, we've had more than one master tape um, that you can't use anymore. And you kind of, yeah, you, you throw it away. Um, there's some things you can do, like for master tapes, for example, you can bake them, which means literally bake them. You put them in the oven for like four hours at 60 degrees, and it takes out the humidity, which makes the, um, the tape stick to one another. And then you can use it one or two more times, but then after that, it's kind of not usable anymore, but it gets you that one solid play to digitalize it. Um, and yeah, I mean, for music archiving, as I, digitalizing is the way to go because it emancipates um, the the music from being stored on a on a physical in a physical form that is deteriorating. So yeah, but like I said, um, and you already mentioned, I mean, I, I wouldn't say we are an archive. We do archival work for the music we work with. But it is because it is necessary for us to do that um, in order to be able to release the music. Um, and then in releasing the music, contextualizing is important. So we might do something that goes further than that. So for example, we have done exhibitions like um, there's an Algerian composer called Ahmed Malek and we did an um, exhibition about his life in the National Museum of Modern Art in Algiers. Um, but I would still see this under the umbrella of contextualizing the musical releases we do. Um, so, so archiving is very much linked to that and we are not an institution where archiving is the purpose in itself. And do you, do you also feel that digitizing uh, the work is kind of uh, like uh, goes against neo-colonialism because it's, ma it's made accessible to everyone in a way or how would you address that? Um, 
I feel it might have that implication, but the same way how I feel it should be important to archive recordings from from Sudan, from the Sudanese jazz scene, I I would also feel it's important to record to do the same for some German crowd rock release from the 1960s. So I think archiving has an importance even outside this, this discourse and that political connotation. Um, but I guess it has a special undertone in, in, in the, the countries we work just because the cultural products from these countries have often been undervalued and not cherished and have not had the chance to be accessible to a wider audience because of the colonial structures that were set up or that these countries where the music is coming from were still in a very early stage of emancipating themselves from. Um, but yeah, I think archiving is, 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 is important even outside of that, but I, 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 I tend to agree um, with, with what you said, that it has a special importance um, in, 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 in countries that have been affected so badly by, by colonial exploitation. Sure. Um, yeah, and so have you, so have you faced any resistance regarding the fact that you're, you know, like a Western man coming to the region to do this work? And also like the, the opposite questions, do you have now people reaching out to you to reissue like old records or? Um, sure, I mean, there, there, there was some resistance or is some resistance here and there. Um, and if you replace resistance, which seems like to be a general state of mind with critical, critical perspective, that is also perfectly appreciated and fine. I mean, it's um, essentially I'm coming to what I do as a guest um, to, to, um, to a culture um, that is not my own. So I, I fully understand that my intentions are, are questions critically. And I, I mean, in the practice and our approach, we try to um, be aware of that. I mean, be it in the way how our business dealings are set up, um, be it in the way how we communicate about the releases, be it about the visual representation, where we try to avoid like repeating stereotypical imagery, um, which, and, and, and also, I think, therefore, it's also very important to, to, to stay open to people critiquing certain aspects of our work, because probably they might be right, or maybe I think about it and I feel like they are not, but it's, I think it's, it's, it's important to stay open um, to people formulating a critique. I mean, um, the, the, the example that always comes to my mind um, is I come from this record Digger record collector background, and there it's a it's a very standard wording that um, if you find a record that um, not a lot of people know about, you post it on the internet and you say I discovered this record 
at the flea market, whatever. And then this friend, a friend of mine pointed out that me using the word discovered in that context is problematic because it's the same way how Christoph Columbus discovered Latin America. Um, there's a lot of people that know about this record um, and me just being the white dude posting it on the internet does not qualify for the wording of having discovered something. And then I was like, yeah, sure, that makes total sense. And since then I tried to avoid it. Um, and yeah, I think that, that it's important to keep an open mind. At the same time, I also realized there's people who are opposed to the general setup of doing what I do and that I'm not so much concerned about how I do it and how I approach it, which um, is a minority, but it pops up here and there. And that's also, I mean, that's something you have to live with. Um, but it's also um, when you speak about me facing this, this is also more of a discussion that is more commonly being had with a younger generation. From artists, um, I don't get that feedback too much. I mean, um, there might be other reasons why sometimes we can't put out a record, but it has never really come down to um, the fact that I'm, I'm a foreigner approaching them. Um, Oh, and then there was a second question, which I forgot. Um, <laughs> yeah, so do people reach out to you for reissuing? Uh, um, it starts a bit, um, but um, I mean, I think, yeah, there's bits and pieces, but I think at this point, it's more old record labels that see what we could potentially do when we collaborate for their old catalog. Um, a lot of the artists I deal with don't use social media, they don't use Spotify. Um, so again, I was having another chat with Roger, whose, whose music we're putting out next month, and he was like, I just Googled and I realized Habibi Funk is everywhere. And I mean, he had signed a release with us and, um, and that seemed to have been the first time that he properly Googled all of this and he was really surprised of, of um, how, how popular it is. Um, and therefore I think a lot of the artists who might have great music that I would love, are not really aware of us too much um, because the ways how they could become aware of us is probably not how they, how they, um, how they gather their information. Um, what happens sometimes is on a more direct basis because all of the old artists are oftentimes connected with one another. Um, and this way, sometimes you, you have that one artist telling you about this old friend of uh, his or hers that they had in the seventies who also made great music that I might like. And sometimes this is how I find new releases, but this is more on a personal level, less than an, the other artist approaching me actively. Nice. And it's uh, also often, because often, sorry, just because oftentimes it's also when you speak to artists that have maybe started in the seventies and then might've been active until the early two thousands and then they're retired. For a lot of these artists, it's still odd that one is interested in their early stuff because then they're always like, but look, listen to the music I did in the 2000s or something like this. And sometimes this, a lot of the artists, like in the beginning when they started, oftentimes they had smaller budgets, the recordings were more rushed, they couldn't afford the nice studio. 
And while we might think that adds a certain charm to the recording that makes it super unique, oftentimes artists are more happy with the recordings they did 25 years later when they were more popular, had more funds, but therefore might have created music that might have lost that original touch. So there's often this disconnect with artists anyhow when I approach them, why I'm interested in that old stuff that they haven't thought about. Um, and not in, in that new stuff that is, is more um, something that they feel is, is meeting the, the sound of, the, of, the, of today. Yeah, that's very interesting, actually. Um, I mean, yeah. I, don't, I don't know, I think, I, don't, I would kind of think it, it's, it's something that is a universal, phenomenon with creatives. I mean, even if you go to the average filmmaker or painter, chances that the work they created yesterday um, is in their mind superior to what they did 25 years ago. I think that that's also, yeah, I, you, I guess you always get more excited about the more, more contemporary stuff than what you did 25 years ago um, when you felt like you were just at the beginning of your journey. So. Um, and to come back to Ahmad Malik, who you mentioned, so um, I guess we don't know a lot about film composers of like the the region, uh, except for like Egyptian film composers because they had like a golden age of cinema. Um, so like, how did you find Ahmad Malik, and did you because he comes in after like he's from Algeria's uh, post-colonial independent period um, of uh, musicians and filmmakers. And did you learn something about like uh, film scoring composition um, that is specific to Algeria at the time? I mean, I guess Malik had a very particular sound. And I think the sound is, so there's interviews with him, how he describes his practice of, of trying to create um, music that underlines and supports the overall mood of the, the movie. So I think there's a very strong connection between the, the light feeling of melancholia that interchanges with like beauty, but that always has this undertone of sadness that you also find in a lot of these, these movies of the time. Um, and I think, yeah, you can't really disconnect one from the other. Um, and yeah, I mean, he was, he was incredibly pro productive at the time. And I think he, he faced the classic um, phase of soundtrack composers that are often way less known than the melodies they created. So I think he has certain melodies that the average older person, at least in Algeria, that you ask on the street and, and sing it to will recognize, but probably the majority of the people will not have heard his name. Um, and, um, but he was a very interesting character because he was also very active in representing his country um, at the world exhibitions, 
um, at a lot of international conferences that dealt with radio, music, broadcasting. Um, so I think he was very much a representative of that post-colonial um, uh, Algeria, not only in his work as a, as, as a soundtrack composer, but as a general figure uh, representing his home country all over the world. I mean, um, we also um, shot um, uh, a do short documentary about him um, that a friend of ours, Paloma, um, directed. And there's this small scene where his daughter um, talks about him and says she was, she was certain that he was a spy because he used to be gone like half of the year, always going to everywhere from, from Cuba to, to, uh, uh, to Japan. Um, and yeah, um, I think his, his, his music was very defining for a particular moment in, 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 in Algerian cinema. Yeah, um, so uh, regarding women in uh, our history, so uh, in film, as we were doing research for uh, Shasha, the independent streaming platform, mm -hmm. we found that a lot of women filmmakers uh, of the 60s, 70s, uh, even a bit earlier, had their movies destroyed or like we never found any copy of any of their works. And do you find that there is something similar that happened in music? Or maybe it's in, a, in general, women are less, um, there are less records and music by women because they didn't have the chance to produce it or? Hmm. I mean, you, when, when you look at our issues, there's obviously an, a, a very much underrepresentation of, of female artists. Um, if you look at recorded music, and obviously it differs from, from every country, um, but let's say if you look at recorded music from, from, from Lebanon of the time, um, and I have not done that academically, but just me flipping through records in a record store, I don't feel like female artists are so strongly underrepresented but what I realized, they are fairly underrepresented in the type of records we are looking for. And I don't exactly know what the reason is for that. Um, one theory I have, and I might be wrong, or it might not be the only reason, but only an, a small aspect of it is that, I guess the, the social fight that a female artist had to go through for having a position in the music business back then, or even today, um, was much harder than their male counterparts. And if that artist would have decided, I'm not only gonna be a singer, I'm gonna be on stage, but I'm also gonna be like Fadul singing about drinking alcohol, not trying to do drugs, depression, the social, stigmata and the social fight would have been even harder. So I, I think that the, the, the gender roles um, that were even more predominant back then, I guess, kept female artists from taking a place in the more underground, more experimental, more out of the norms musical scenes because they had to already have that fight to just be in the mainstream, socially more accepted musical realm. And 
a lot of them didn't want to take the, that fight they would have needed to have even further. And like I said, it's just something I, can, I thought might be part of that situation or it's part of that observation why female artists are still comparatively underrepresented in the type of sound that we're interested in, which also doesn't mean that they don't exist. They're just underrepresented. Yeah, of course. I mean, everyone knows, you know, Um Kulthum and Fairuz and Asmahan, but like, and yeah, as you said, like more underground scenes, there are not yeah. a lot of women. Um, but I mean, I, I, I wouldn't know of what you said about works being destroyed um, because yeah. there were female artists that um, I wouldn't know any examples of in the musical context, which doesn't mean that I, it's just me not being aware of it. There might be examples for that, yeah. but I don't think that was a widespread phenomenon. Um, yes. And so I guess I've gone through all of my questions. Do you have any advice for people looking to get into, you know, record producing and... Yeah. Um, um, I, what I feel is kind of important is, and I guess that's true for a lot of small businesses um, in, in the creative field is to give yourself time to organically grow something and if that means you even if you're super dedicated and you really want to do that probably it's better to start it from the background of you still having that day job that you might not particularly like or being a student and working at some bar or whatever um, i think organic growth is something that is very crucial um, if you're trying to do something that is more in the realm of special interest, um, because your potential listenership is not that big. So in order to open that door and at least identify the number of people that are interested in what you might do, um, it needs time. Um, and I think if you try from the get-go to make a living off of that, um, without that organic growth, it, it means it comes at a higher risk that you end up having to corrupt the content you are trying to put in place because you have to compromise too much in order to, to make it financially work. Um, but I mean, this is also just my personal observation, and obviously it, it is also coming from a certain level of privilege, which I'm very much aware of. Um, but um, still, I guess the, the idea of applying organic growth and letting time run its course is something that can be applied to, to most situations that people are, are in. Um, and yeah. Um, but yeah, and in, in general, I think that that is also a gradual change you see happening. I think um, there's more and more a young generation that is starting to look into starting their own record labels um, in a lot of the cities and countries that um, I find music at. And I think eventually a lot of these entities, crews, collectives will take over because let's be realistic, if you are in Casablanca and you want to 
put out a record by a musician from 30 years ago, obviously your chance of doing a better job than me, who's just visiting, is is very high. So I think it's 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 naturally um, gonna be a field also this ratio market um, that is going to take be taken over by local entities. Um, which and which is something that is great. I, I don't. I don't. I, um, it's yes. not something I, I. I consider a problem or competition, but it's something that I, um, I fully endorse. And there's actually some um, uh, new label called Dikrafon in, in in Casablanca, um, who we might have some projects coming out with. And then there's a um, someone in in Algeria who we might work with together, where we might help with like distribution and stuff. Where where there's a bit harder to facilitate if you're in Morocco. Um, but yeah. That's great. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs>